We'll do a little bit of recapping in a moment, but we're reaching chapter 5 and 6 today, and I've entitled our thoughts today, uh, Dealing with Discouragement. Um, And this is because, as I hope we'll see, after a great start for them, as they come home back to Jerusalem, things have begun to go wrong. Um, I don't know if you've ever really been fed up. It's not the most happy question, is it? But I'm thinking of a particular kind of discouragement that works something like this. You maybe once had a dream. Maybe the way seemed open for you to achieve something really good. It felt right. Maybe you had other people around you who shared your excitement and life was looking up. And then something happened and all those exciting plans just got messed up somehow. And uh, what you hoped would happen never materialised and it left you feeling disappointed, discouraged. Just imagine then if, if you then spent 20 years feeling like that that kind of frustration and what what would it do to you Uh, sometimes we meet people don't we who are discouraged and and they often people can slip into a kind of victim mentality and um, I I was thinking of a a song by there's a a famous song you'll recognise a lyric uh, by a group called Travis who sang a famous song a few years ago why does it always rain on me is it because I lied when I was 17 that's a very poignant lyric, that, isn't it? Why does it always rain on me? And sometimes people can live like that, can't they? Uh, I don't think there's anything more sapping than discouragement. And we all need encouragement, don't we? But this can happen spiritually too. What happens when it seems spiritually like the plans you thought God had fail? And where do you go when it really feels to you that God hasn't lived up to his promise? How can you recover a sense of God's purposes and vision for your life and be inspired to live again, dream again, hope again? Well, I say all that because this is exactly where we are in the book of Ezra. We've reached a point in the story here that includes almost 20 years of spiritual disappointment and discouragement after which there is really quite an inspirational turnaround and uh, so this afternoon I I want you to keep in mind that idea of long term discouragement and how does it develop, what does it do to you and how can you recover from it Okay. does that sound like a plan now I said it would be helpful for us to do a little recap, I'm conscious we have visitors Ezra isn't the most well known book So we'll just do a very little recap so we can just appreciate how this discouraging situation has evolved. There was a few waves of uh, Jewish people who were carried off into exile over a few years, but it all came to a final head in 586 BC um, when Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The walls were flattened, the temple was flattened, the place was burnt. It was a great pile of rubble and ash. And the whole amazing history of God's people was left in tatters. It was like God had forgotten them or abandoned them. But of course we know that he hadn't 
forgotten them or abandoned them. And the journey home was about to begin. Here's a quick timeline. In 539 BC, the Assyrian Empire was conquered by the Persian Empire and was initially led by a great king called Cyrus. So we'll slot him in there. 539 BC, he became the king. Now, he, he's effectively the king of what we would call now the Middle East. This, he was the king of the global superpower of his day. But the political climate changed from one of oppression to one of tolerance. And within one year, this pagan king Cyrus issued a decree, which is talked about in Ezra chapter 1, ordering that any people who had been deported should be sent home more than that, he promised to pay for them to rebuild their cities and their temples. And more than that, he ordered that all the things that the previous Assyrian Empire had stolen from them were to be returned so that they, should, they could worship their gods. And the Jewish people were included in that. So they begin the journey home in 538 BC. Amazing. A little flock of people, 50,000 people out of a nation of millions who returned home as a little fragile people back to Jerusalem. What they find there is that Jerusalem is in ruins and they begin to rebuild. God is with them under the leadership of a man called, what we were talking in the office, how you say his name, is it Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel? We don't know, it begins with Z and it's got lots of B's in it. He's the leader and they rebuild the altar, first of all, in exactly the same place as it was before and then they make a start in the temple they laid the foundations of a temple in 536 BC and you can imagine the joy their great dreams this is their homecoming they're beginning to rebuild they're looking forward rather than backwards they're not in exile anymore they're not slaves they have freedom they have the resources and remember, they're not just coming home to Jerusalem, they're coming home in a way to worship their great God. But the wheel comes off so quickly. Richard showed us last week that there were other people in the area who offered to help them to rebuild. And the leaders, it seemed innocuous enough, but the leaders said, no, we are God's people and we're going to do that. The doors open for them to come and join in if they wanted to, but they weren't allowed to come and influence them away from the worship of the true God. And as they refuse the help, that's when the trouble starts. Their so-called friends begin to show their true colours, and they begin a sustained campaign of intimidation. And the rebuilding work stops. They've laid the foundations, and then it all comes to a standstill. And if we put an arrow on our timeline here, the temple rebuilding began in 536 BC and it wasn't finished until 516 BC, 20 years. Almost a generation of nothing happening. If you just uh, look in the book of Ezra, we're on page 477 and the very last verse of Ezra chapter 4 um, and it says there, the work on, on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, when you look at this timeline, Cyrus was the king. He was succeeded in 530 BC by his son Cambyses. And then Darius I became king in 522. D 
Darius was not an heir to the throne. He, he thought he was the best man for the job. But there was no heir. And he spent the, the first two years of his reign was turmoil because there was rebellion everywhere, all across the empire. Every region rebelled. We don't want this man to be our king. And he, apparently, uh, we, we know this because he made a massive inscription on the side of a hill in western Iraq. It's massive, 25 metres long with, a, with an engraving of him and inscription in three languages. It's still there. It's a World Heritage site. This man, Darius, says apparently that he fought 19 battles in the first year of becoming king. He, he, the, the, the whole, he spent the first two years putting fires out in his empire. He then organises the empire into districts with governors known as satraps. He introduced a new currency called the Darik, which I presume was named after him. And um, then we come to this uh, period, 520 BC. And the, our, our focus really is not the politics, but God's little flock in Jerusalem. They've made it home. They had big hopes. There's great joy. But the fierceness of the opposition and the uncertain political climate have prevented them from doing anything at all. And the work has just stopped. The temple's still in ruins. 16 years of frustration. It's almost a generation, that, isn't it? Nothing happens for a generation. Now, what, what I'd like us to do is to read what happened next. Do you ever watch Question of Sport? If I freeze the frame there, what happened next? Yeah? Well, we're going to read. We're going to read uh, quite a long section, but it's hard to... I, I was grappling with this during the week. I don't really know how to break it up. So Ben's going to come and read to us through chapter 5 and into chapter 6. And hopefully that will set the context for you to understand what's going on. So over to Ben. He's going to come and read to us, and then we'll carry on. Thank you, Ben. Yep, so we're going to be reading from that verse, um, Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, uh, page 477. Okay. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozanai, and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, What are the names of the men constructing this building? But the, eye of, but the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until the report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sethar Bozanai and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God, the people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorised you to rebuild this temple and restore, restore this structure? We also asked them their names. 
so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are, rebuild, we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to uh, Neb- Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told them, Take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple of Jerusalem, and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but is not yet finished. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ekbatana in the province of Media, and this this is what was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide, with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid for by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sethar Bozanai, and you, their fellow officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild the house of God on, their, on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine and oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled out from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sethar Bozanai and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month, Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. 
Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in the groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. Thank you, Bar. Um, an official inspection. Um, these guys in Jerusalem uh, have a visit. Um, some of you know that uh, I've run a business. Once at work, we had a visit from the Health and Safety Inspectorate. It was a very busy day. Two guys just turned up in reception. My secretary came to find me. And uh, first I was a bit cross because it was very inconvenient. And I said to her, can you ask them please to make an appointment? And the message came back to me, they don't make appointments. This is a random spot check. And they politely asked if you can stop what you're doing and come and talk to them. So we had a random spot check. These two guys went round the whole factory. And it was very scary. But we did pass. And they sent a nice letter afterwards, which I've still got somewhere. What happens here in Jerusalem, as they start to rebuild, is that they have an inspection. Two guys turn up, Tatanai and his assistant. These guys are important officials. And uh, commentators believe that this guy Tatanai reported to one of the satraps, uh, who then reported to Darius, the king of the whole empire. This inspection is not an unfair inspection. It is not opposition to what they're doing. Remember that the whole empire has been in turmoil. And Tatanai is wondering, what on earth are these guys doing in Jerusalem? Are they building a temple or a fortress? Is this a site where they're making weapons of mass destruction? Why are they using such big stones? Why are the timbers so massive? What on earth are they doing? Is this peaceful or is this the start of another local regional rebellion? You can understand his concern. Tatanai's just doing his job. He, he, he said, what does he say in verse 5? In chapter 5 and verse 3, Who authorised you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? And what are the names of the men constructing this building? It's a fair question, isn't it? Who gave you permission to do this? And I want you to give me a list of the names of all the ringleaders. Because I'm going to talk to my king to see whether you've got permission to do this. Well, how would you respond to that? Could you come back next week, please? I'm very busy at the moment. You can't do it, can you? It's a random spot check. The Jewish leaders are very gracious and they respond to this inspection with great tact. And Tatanai seems impressed, actually, with their integrity. Because it says that he allowed them to continue the work until the king, Darius, had replied to their inquiry. And notice how Tatanai describes the work. Ben read to us the letter that he sends to the king. In verse 8, Tatanai writes, The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and making rapid progress. These people... 
They're they're building with enthusiasm. It's a good work. And notice the reply that the leaders make in verse 11. This is the answer that the leaders gave us. We are the servants of God. We were in exile. But that doesn't mean that our God is weak. It happened because we were rebellious. But he hasn't forgotten us. And if you'll be so kind as to check in your archives, you'll realise that we're doing this by the authority of your king, Cyrus. It's a very gracious reply, isn't it? A search is made then of the archives. It's very interesting this as well. It says in the Bible here that in, in chapter 6, verse 1, that they searched in Babylon. But they didn't find anything in Babylon. But eventually they found a scroll in the citadel of Ecbatana. We now know that that was the summer palace where King Cyrus went. And it's entirely possible that he made the original decree in Ezra chapter 1 in the summertime while he was there. And isn't it amazing that they find the memo or the minute of that official decree in his summer palace? It kind of confirms the historicity, is that a word, of the Bible's account here. They find the decree of Cyrus. Amazingly, Darius then writes back to Tatanai and he he says to him, doesn't he, he's only doing his job, but he says to him quite harshly, leave them alone. Don't, Don't interfere with what they're doing. You just let them carry on. In addition, I want you to pay for it. You're collecting taxes from your region. I want you to take a little bit of money from the tax revenues and give it to them so that they can build it properly I want you to give them all the animals they need for their sacrifices. In fact, tell them to pray for us. What an answer. You can imagine the leaders of the Jews thinking, that's not what we were expecting from this. I've got a letter somewhere from the Health and Safety Inspectorate. We should have framed it, shouldn't we? These guys have got a letter now saying that they've passed with flying colours. In fact, Darius says, if anyone dares to defy this, I will impale them on a joist of their own house. Can you imagine that? I'll take a joist out and I'll lift you up on it. This is a proper good response, isn't it? Now God's people, after 16 years of doing nothing, again have the freedom and the resources to complete what they started. And on the 12th of March, 516 BC, the second temple is finished. And Ben read to us that they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. In fact, chapter 6 and verse 22, just later on, Ben didn't read that verse. It says, the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. They realize again that their God is in control even of a pagan superpower and their hearts are filled with joy and they carry on and finish the work. Now, if we were to ask the question, what made the difference? What made the difference here? What was it that put an end to 16 years of discouragement And so radically inspired them to pick up their tools and finish the job that they'd started a generation before. 
It's the same guy, Zerubbabel, or Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. He started the work in chapter 3. And then for 16 years, what was he doing? Living in his house. And yet it's Zerubbabel who completes the job. Just look with me at chapter 5 again. Verse 1. Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then, then, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. What was it that made the difference? What was it that inspired these people who were discouraged to resume the good work that they started and yet given up? In the midst of their discouragement, the thing that revives them and inspires them is preaching. Isn't that incredible? This man Haggai and his compatriot Zechariah began to preach God's word to them. Not only that, it said, we read, they helped them, encouraged them. And when the people, Zerubbabel especially, heard God's word, God's perspective, God's vision, then they got up and faced their fears and finished what they'd started. And these prophets are there, you can imagine them cajoling, encouraging, inspiring, and helping them. Come on, don't give up. This is a good work. You can do this. God is with you. Don't be afraid. Let's get it done. You can sense the inspiration. Just um, flick over the page and go to chapter 6 and verse 14. Ben did read this verse to us. I think verse 14 is a key verse like over the whole episode here. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper. Why? Under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. They finished building the temple according to the command of God and the decree of Cyrus, Darius and Artaxerxes. And the temple was completed and that's why we know the date. I don't know whether you could draw this as a little triangle the work was completed by God's command, by a human king's command, Darius, but inspired by the preaching of the prophets that inspired them to catch a sense of vision. The work prospered, it says, because the prophets encouraged them to see things from God's perspective rather than just from a horizontal perspective. So, what on earth are we studying the book of Ezra for on a, on a hot Sunday afternoon? What, what is the author aiming at with this story? Why is it important? Because their discouragement was dealt with and their hope revived and their vision restored by the faithful preaching of their prophets. What engaged their hearts was the proclamation of God's word and truth 
and it gave them perspective and it drew them into God's purposes. Now, we've just got a few minutes left and I want to be very quick. Um, but I think it will really help us to just have a little look at what Haggai actually said. Because that's where the inspiration comes from. Um, and as it happens, Haggai is only just a couple of pages in the Bible. If we know what he preached to them on these dates at this time, then it will give us a clue as to what had gone wrong with their attitude and why they'd given in to discouragement and we'll see how Haggai inspires them. Is that okay? Hopefully, we're in Ezra, but we're going to have a little overview of Haggai so that we can understand what it was that inspired them. And I hope this will really help you. So just turn with me now uh, to the book of Haggai. It's on page 948 in the Red Church Bibles. If you haven't got a Red Church Bible, I can't help you. It's one of those little books that will take you 10 minutes to find. That will teach you to get a Red Church Bible, won't it? 948. Haggai, I think that's how you say it. That's how we're going to say it anyway. And look what it says right at the top of the page. A call to build the house of the Lord. Haggai started preaching on the 29th of August, 520 BC. We know that because we're told the date in verse 1. Zechariah joined him a little bit later in September. Maybe he needed to see his mate do it first before he joined in. I don't know. But the two of them were a double act. Haggai started first, then Zechariah joined him. Haggai is a plain speaking, direct, blunt, straight to the point kind of guy. Zechariah is not. He is very mysterious, enigmatic. He preaches in parables and symbolism and all kinds of strange pictures. But both of them were used by God to inspire a discouraged people to get up and get on with the job that they'd started. And what's interesting is that we have both Haggai and Zechariah's words in the Bible as well as Ezra. So let's um, have a little look. We're in Jerusalem. The people are miserable, discouraged. They've had 16 years of doing nothing. And I want to suggest to you four attitudes. And, and we'll, this, is, this is it. We'll close with this. Number one, fatalism. Haggai's preaching. Here we are. Number one, fatalism. Look with me at verse two. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. This is God speaking through Haggai, the Lord Almighty. Look how he describes them. He doesn't say, this is what my people say. He says, these people say. It's almost like God's too ashamed of them. He hardly recognises them as his people. These people, these people say, it's not time. Here's a little clue to their attitude. What they're saying is, it's not God's will for us to build a temple. There's been some opposition. It's been difficult. They've got very little resources. They come to the conclusion that it's not time. In other words, we give up. It's too hard to carry on. Now, it is true that they did have many obstacles. The opposition was real. But God had brought them home. From Babylon, all the way back to Jerusalem. And ultimately, this in verse 2 here is an excuse. It is really a lack of faith. It's a lack of confidence in what God has enabled them to do. It's too hard 
so it can't be God's will. If it was God's will, it would be a lot easier. So we give up. It's impossible, so it can't be the right time. Fatalism. Do you know that it can often be the case that people can be part of a community of God's people they can be found in church, for example. They can sing the songs and look the part. But in their hearts, they are really atheists. When it comes down to it, these people simply don't believe that God can do anything. They are what we might call functional atheists. They look like believers, but there's no light on. <laughs> They've given up. They've succumbed to a kind of fatalism that is empty and flat it's a challenge that isn't it what a, what a thing for Haggai 29th of August was it he stands up he begins to preach this is what God says about you have you heard my people they say it's not my will for the temple to be built what on earth are they on about do they not believe me let me ask you when you think about our church when you ponder our town our community in your own mind and heart are you saying well the time hasn't yet come for God to build might do one day but obviously it's really hard so it mustn't be God's will the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built are you really saying it's too hard so it can't be God's will at the moment. That isn't faith. It's fatalism. For these people it was an excuse for being idle. So the main reason the work stopped wasn't their opposition. But it was the effect the opposition had in killing their faith stone dead. They just gave up. Can't be God's will. Wouldn't be as hard as this if it was. It's a challenging way to the prophet that isn't it? We'll have to be quick though. Because we've got four. That's only the first one. Number two. Materialism. In succumbing to fatalism, you can understand that the only thing left for them to do is just get on with their own lives, isn't it? Isn't that what people do? If God's not going to do anything, it's not his will, we might as well just carry on doing what we were doing. And that's exactly what Haggai says. Verse 3. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled fancy houses while this house remains a ruin? Can you see what God's saying to them? You've given up, and what you've done is gone and built your own houses. You've put a conservatory on the back, you've made your lawn nice, you've planted nice shrubs, your families have grown up there 16 years, and my house is still like a pile of junk. What on earth are you doing? He's not saying it's wrong to build a house, they've got to have somewhere to live. But when they succumb to fatalism, the only thing left is to just mind your own business, isn't it? They just began to live for themselves, their plans, their dreams, their security, their comfort. And God was like a forgotten friend. And the interesting thing about this is that God consistently frustrated their plans. If you read these verses, the more they planted, the less they seemed to harvest. The more clothes they put on, the colder they seemed to get. The more money they earned, the more they lost. God says to them, you expected a lot and it all turned out to be too little. God says to them later on here in verse 9, what you brought home, I blew away. You thought you could do a lot. 
But because you didn't put me first, you ended up with nothing. Isn't that a thankless treadmill to be on? If you had the faith to believe God and the will to get on with the work and use your resources in God's service, it would have been finished by now. This is the attitude of saying, I'm too busy, God. Will you just leave me alone for a few years because I've got a life to live. I'm very busy. There's things to do and you are distracting me from my ambition. <laughs> Please, you're being a pain, God. Leave me alone. That's what, that's what they're saying, isn't it? When I've got my life straight, then I will start on your agenda, God. I promise, I really do promise that when everything's sorted, then I will think about you. We haven't got time. Jesus says it in Matthew's Gospel. Pagans run after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. It isn't wrong to have stuff. But if that is your God, it's become your ultimate thing. It's an idol. It is revealing, isn't it, to hear Haggai's preaching to them. They'd lost their faith and they drifted into neglect. What was the effect of his preaching? Well, in verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. Immediate obedience led to immediate assurance when they got their priorities right and started doing the work in obedience to God, the first thing God says to them is, do you know what? I'm with you. <laughs> They'd spent 16 years not knowing that. As soon as they put their shoulder to the work, God says, I'm with you. He stirred their hearts. That's the inspiration that made the change. Third thing, very quickly, cynicism. In chapter 2 of Haggai, another attitude comes to Haggai's mind. They began the work on the 21st of September, 520 BC. And now we're in October. And Haggai begins to preach again. Look at verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? He's being a bit sarcastic. What Haggai is saying is, isn't it pathetic, this little temple that you're trying to build? It's a pile of stones. Does it seem to you like nothing? Some of you can remember what it was like before it was destroyed. It's ridiculous. Anyone who sees what you're doing will be walking past and sniggering because it's so ridiculously pathetic. 
It's very interesting that Zechariah starts preaching around this time, September, and there's a very well-known passage to some of you where he talks about people who despise the day of small things. Some of you will recognize that phrase. It's one of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, it's so depressing that my church is so small. And then someone else says, don't worry, you mustn't despise the day of small things. It's not what Zechariah meant at all. As if it's a justification for accepting smallness or being complacent. What, what Haggai and Zechariah are doing, they've got a different aim in mind. What they're saying is, don't worry that things are broken now. If you will put your hand to the work, God will be with you. Don't despise the day of small things. There is, the problem is that there are some people who would lift a finger to help, but only when they're sure that it will be successful. I will help one day, but only when things are looking in better shape. I mean, why would you invest your life in this? It's a ruin. It's a broken down shed. I've got far better things to be doing with my time. I don't even want to be associated with this pile of stones. I want to see more evidence first that it would be worth it. When it starts to look grander, then I might start helping. I don't want to be associated with such a desperate looking excuse for a building project. It's pride there, isn't it? Cynicism. For these people to invest their life in something that looked a bit rubbish and a bit weak takes great courage. And look at what God says to Zerubbabel. Look at verses um, 6. Well, he, he, he says, verse 4, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work. Why? For I am with you. And then in verse 6, Haggai continues to preach. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former one. And in this place... I will grant peace, declares the Lord. What's God saying to them? What you're doing is right on my purposes. If you thought the old temple was great, this one will be greater. And it did last longer. But more than that, it was the shadow of Christ coming into the world. The desire of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. These people are doing a great work. The eye of God is on them. And it looks like a broken down shed. Never ever be cynical about the work of God. God said to them, my spirit remains among you. Do not be afraid. Do not give way to cynicism. Haggai's advice to them. Can you imagine him as they get up one day and they're feeling a bit fed up and a bit depressed and Haggai comes along and says, no, you don't want to be thinking like that. You and he stares their hearts up to carry on with the work. Don't give in to fatalism. Don't waste your life away neglecting God. Don't be seduced by big, grand plans. Be strong and work because the Lord your God is with you.
Let me just give you one more. Number four. It was an ism, but it didn't really make sense. So I had to put the word complacency into that. I'm sorry, it doesn't fit with the others. Haggai, in chapter 2, uses a very odd little parable. I'll, I'll let you, re- you can read that at home, but let me paraphrase him to make the point. Here's what he says You have two hands. Most of you, I think. You imagine if one hand was dirty and the other hand was sterile and clean. If your hands touch, which side wins? Does the clean, sterile hand make the other hand sterile? Or does the dirty hand make the sterile hand dirty? Which one is more contagious? It's obvious, isn't it? That's really what he's saying. Why is that? What he's saying is, being holy is not contagious. But being dirty is. So, if you're dirty and you want to become holy, you just go to a holy place, right? Go to a church and you'll catch holiness. Will you? No. You go to a holy place and what you'll do is make that holy place dirty. You see the parable? Very clever. If you look at verse 14 then, of chapter 2, very quickly you'll see the point. Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer there, Jerusalem that is, is defiled. Here's the point. They thought that because they were in Jerusalem, they were automatically holy. It's God's city. We're building God's temple. We'll surely catch a bit of holiness by just being here. Actually, what happens is rather than catching holiness, they just defile the place. Think about this. These people were showing signs of fatalism, materialism, cynicism, but they weren't bothered because they lived in Jerusalem. Surely that must make us holy in God's sight. Mustn't it? Why not? Because you can't catch holiness. You have to be holy. This is the challenge to the complacent. There are some people who think by being born in Britain, they are somehow Christian. Or the kind of people who think because they go to church, they must be holy somehow. But holiness is not caught by osmosis. Ask Jai afterwards what that is. Because he's a scientist and does clever things. You don't become holy by being around holy people. Holiness is a matter of what's going on on the inside of your heart. The real you. Haggai is inspiring them to wake up and stop wallowing in discouragement. To have faith to be godly, to face reality, to seek God and to put their shoulders to the work. Not to make excuses. I'm too busy. It's too small. It's not worth it. It's too hard. How on earth can we do it? Well, let me close with this. I'm, I'm sorry to have to tell you that it is not possible for us to do it. Because this is beyond us. 
but it is not beyond God. And there is a little clue here in the book of Haggai. This guy Zerubbabel, who started a good work and then gave up and then restarted it, is very significant. And there's a very interesting little section at the end of Haggai here where Zerubbabel is described as the Lord's signet ring. What that is about really is the idea that he is like a guarantee. He is the seal of a future promise. He is like the down payment because the solution is still coming. Just turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Keep your finger in Haggai if you you want. Matthew chapter 1. Did you ever read those lists in the Bible of genealogies and think, what on earth is that in the Bible for? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and so it goes down to Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Did you know that this man, Zerubbabel, was a direct ancestor of the Christ? The Lord's signet ring. A deposit guaranteeing the reality. Haggai is really preaching to Zerubbabel and saying, don't be fatalistic, selfish, cynical, or pretend he responds by getting up from his discouragement and fulfilling the work he'd begun. But this is all really pointing to Jesus, the great saviour of the discouraged, the one who came to save the sinful, the failing, the guilty, the weak, the selfish. Christianity is not us pulling ourselves up, but it is trusting Jesus to do what we can't to save you, to stir you, to strengthen you, to be with you, to guide you. Are you discouraged? Do you have broken dreams? Are you unsure if life can really be lived? Have you succumbed to fatalism, materialism, cynicism, complacency? I want to point you to Jesus. God's answer is not a program or a system, but a person. The only man who ever lived who was never discouraged, who faced every hardship imaginable without flagging or ever giving up, and the one who ultimately laid down his life to save ours. The one who allowed himself to be destroyed in a way so that something great could be built that would last. Jesus is the hero in the story. And you can trust him. Amen. Oh,